Welcome to the Valley of the Suns podcast, part of the Fansided Podcast Network. Here's your host, Gerald Borgay. Welcome, Valley boys and girls, to another episode of the Valley of the Suns podcast, part of the Fansided Podcast Network. I'm your host, Gerald Borgay, and we have a couple of interesting topics to talk about today. Um, before we recap the week, we'll probably get into um, the Suns learning how to close out close games. We'll talk a little bit about Mark Gasol, whether there's a buyout possibility there for the Suns. And then we will finish up with, for our G-rated segment, Godzilla versus Kong, the movie that everybody's talking about and uh, a movie that is exactly what you think it is. Um, but before we get started with that, let's just go through and recap the week real quick. Um, Devin Booker obviously came up big for the Suns in their latest game against the Bulls on Wednesday night. Um, he went off for 45 points, 17 of 24 shooting, um, made two of his five threes, which is impressive that he got to 45 on only five three-point attempts. Um, the best thing about that was maybe that he got to the line 10 times, made nine of those. Um, and he had that dagger layup going past Nikola Vucevic, which put Phoenix up uh, five with 35 seconds left and pretty much, you know, effectively iced the game out, which was good to see because it snapped a streak for him of kind of going cold in the clutch. Um, he had missed 12 straight shots in crunch time, which um, is defined as uh, last five minutes of a game with the score within five points. Um, he had missed 12 straight shots in the clutch in that scenario dating back to February 24th. So this was good to see him kind of get out of that slump, hit a clutch shot, lead the Suns to victory, and he did it on a night where he dropped 45. So um, good things all around for Devin Booker. He kind of needed a game like that. And he had said after, I think it was the Hawks game, um, it was either the Hawks game or the Bulls game, that he had said, you know, I, I feel like I've been missing some shots that I should be making, especially in those fourth quarter scenarios where the Suns have been struggling recently, like we talked about on the last show. But uh, we should also give a shout out to Dario Saric for the way that he bounced back. Um, literally last episode, we've been talking about some of the areas he's been struggling, especially with his shooting and scoring. Um, he's bounced back in a big way in the two games since then. Um, he put up 20 points, five rebounds and two assists against the Hawks. Um, in only 18 minutes, he shot seven of eight from the floor, made all three of his three-pointers, and was a plus 12 in that win over the Hawks. And then second night of a back-to-back -back against the Bulls, um, he dropped 16 points, five rebounds, two assists, uh, made six of his nine shots, made three of his five three-pointers, and was a plus three in his 20 minutes. So really good production out of him in, in very limited time. Um, he's made three threes in each of those games. That's probably not sustainable, but it's been good to see Sharks kind of bounce back and, and put the ball in the hole again. Um, and we need to give you one last update on the Suns starting lineup with Jay Crowder. We've been tracking this all season long, but that lineup is now up to a plus 2.4 net rating in 513 minutes together on the season. Um, obviously that's the Suns most played lineup by far and uh, even better since the middle of February, that lineup has a net rating of plus 9.3. And that's in 298 minutes over 20 games together. So in the last 20 games or so, that starting lineup has been really good, um, nearly a, a plus 10 net rating there. So seems like that Jay Crowder group has finally started to figure out, which is good news for the Suns, especially if 
um, you know, Dario Saric and Cam Payne and Cam Johnson can hold down the bench unit. The Suns are starting to look like they've got a coherent playoff rotation for sure. Um, and part of that, our first topic for this episode is their ability to close out games. Now the Suns as a whole have not been a very good clutch team this season. I think their point differential in the clutch now is neutral. It's just zero. Um, but that's actually an improvement from where they were just a few weeks ago. And they're kind of getting in this habit of doing just enough to win games for better or worse. That's both a compliment and an insult. Um, because you look at their last four opponents or last five, even if you count that loss to the magic, um, but they played, you know, the magic, the Raptors who are basically falling apart. Uh, they played the Hornets who are, you know, a, a top four, top five team in the East, but that's not really saying much. They're kind of hovering around 500. Um, then you've got the Hawks who same deal are kind of hovering around 500. And then you've got the Bulls who were very shorthanded. They're missing Zach Levine and Kobe White on Wednesday. And, uh, you know, I'm pretty sure they're a sub 500 team as well. So inferior opponents all around the Suns are barely eking out wins against these teams, which is both good and bad. We've talked about the bad. We've talked about how their fourth quarter offense hasn't been great. Um, we've talked about how they play down to their competition, but in a weird way, they are kind of getting practice for what they might see in the playoffs, potential scenarios where, they let teams back into games and have to hold on to a lead when another team has all the momentum. Um, so, you know, since that, that one point loss to the magic, that was really bad on the road. They've beaten the Raptors by four, the Hornets by four in overtime, the Hawks by seven and the bulls by five. And in all four of those games, they faced inferior opponents. They all saw those opponents sneak their way back into the game in the last four or five minutes of the third quarter. And they all featured games where the Suns did just enough to win. So in that Raptors game, they led by 16 in the third quarter. In the Hornets game, they led by 16 in the fourth quarter. In the Hawks game, they led by 15 in the third quarter. And in the Bulls game, they led by 16 in the third quarter. So you're seeing a pattern there where the Suns, and we've seen this multiple times this season, not just in this last four-game stretch, but where they go up big by double digits, they let teams back in. And oddly enough, if you look at kind of their game chart, the ebb and flow uh, on NBA.com, it has these game charts where it shows how the lead shrinks, how it rises and falls. Every time the Suns lead has shrunk in those last four to five minutes of the third quarter. And it's not a great habit to get into. And it's one that the Suns will have to address. But in a weird way, they are kind of giving themselves training wheels as far as learning how to close out games. Um, and, and I think it's worth going over each game specifically because as frustrating as it is to watch the Suns squander these leads against inferior opponents, it's also pretty encouraging that they've made a number of signature plays to do just enough in the fourth quarter to win Um that are kind of easy to overlook because of the frustration over the fact that these are even games in the first place. So in the Raptors game, um, we, we kind of, it's easy to forget that there was DeAndre Ayton's block on Pascal Siakam with a minute and a half left in the game in a two point game. That was a huge defensive play. Um, and then there was Mikhail Bridges hustle play for that offensive rebound that basically sealed the deal with like eight seconds left. Um, and the Suns clinging to that two-point lead. And then Booker, after Mikael Bridges got that rebound, the Suns got the ball to Booker on the next inbounds play, and he got fouled, and he sealed it with two free throws, and that was game over for that game. 
um, in the Hornets game, you know, Devonte Graham was going off and the Hornets actually have a chance to win it at the buzzer with the ball in Graham's hands. And Mikael Bridges gets a clutch stop on his three point attempt. Um, and, you know, kind of single-handedly prevents what would have been a really demoralizing collapse um, with that last second attempt from Graham. And then, you know, in overtime, Bridges hits a three to provide a little bit of a cushion. The Suns get a couple of stops. And then Booker draws free throws with like 14 seconds left to extend that two-point lead to four. Um, I'm pretty sure Devontae Graham got fouled on the next play, so they cut it to two again. And then Chris Paul sealed it with free throws um, with like, you know, two seconds left or whatever it was. But the point is like, they're doing enough to close out games, even in that game where they had no business being in overtime that turned out to be an okay win, not a good win, but an okay win because it was actually their first overtime win on the season. They were and three to that point that improved them to one and three. So they got that, that kind of monkey off their back and they did what they needed to from the free throw line to close it out. Um, the Suns are shooting 83.2% from the free throw line this year, which is the third best percentage in the NBA. So even though they're dead last in attempts, it's good to know that if they do have a narrow lead and they have to hit free throws, they are a good free throw shooting team from an efficiency standpoint, at least, um, and should be able to close out games that way. Um, and then if you look at the Hawks game, you know, Aiton had that incredibly tough hook shot over Clint Capella with like, what was it, like two minutes left in the game. Um, and, you know, that's a that's a shot that we see him take quite a bit as far as like ill-advised shots. Like sometimes that hook shot just, it doesn't, it's very contested. It's not within the flow of the offense. It's not really what you want to see, but he drilled that. I mean, that shot was pure and it was heavily contested by Capella and it came in a really big situation in that game. So, you know, th these are good things that you want to see. And then uh, a couple of plays later with, uh, I think Chris Paul inbounded the ball to bridges and he faked the handoff to Chris Paul and just beeline towards the basket and had an easy dunk. And that put the Suns up four with like a minute, 20 seconds left to go in that game um and then Aiton you know the Hawks come down and cut it to one I think Bogdanovich hit a three and then the Suns come back down and Aiton gets a putback with like 50 seconds left or whatever it was so these are big plays that Aiton and Bridges are making in the, in the clutch that are really encouraging because you know obviously Chris Paul and, and Devin Booker are going to be the go-to guys on offense but when you see Bridges making those hustle offensive rebounds or getting stops or even making a smart play like that drive to the basket for a dunk. And then you see Aiton hitting, you know, getting a clutch block on Siakam, hitting that hook shot, uh, getting that put back. These are all really big things. And he did it again against the Bulls the other night. Um, you know, he had like three consecutive stops against Nikola Vucevic when the Suns really needed stops because the Bulls had, I think they tied it with like three minutes to go in the game. Um, so these are all really encouraging things to see. And then the execution um, in that Bulls or in that Hawks game, Jay Crowder hits that, that three pointer and gets fouled to put the Suns up, you know, they were up three and he, he extends it to seven and effectively ices the game. Um, and then in the Bulls game, as we noted, you know, there was Aiton getting stops on Vucevic. There was Devin Booker's layup driving past Vucevic. Um, and just the fact that the Suns scored, I think 14 of their last 20 points from the free throw line, which is very unlike them, um, that's a good sign that they're able to get to the line when they need to. Um, and I'm not, I'm not saying that the Suns are like intentionally playing with their food 
so that they can let bad teams back in the game so they can get practice in these areas that that would be kind of asinine to assume that this team has that much control to where they're like, okay, we'll take our foot off the gas a little bit. We'll let them back in that way we can practice our late game scenarios. Like that's not how it works, but they are kind of serving as uh, like training wheels for what they might see against better teams. And that's encouraging because the Suns have already played like an elite team against quality competition. They have, I think either the best or second best record against teams with winning records in the NBA and they've played really well against the best teams in the NBA this season. So that is encouraging that they are kind of getting this practice, even if it feels um, frustrating because these are lesser teams that shouldn't even be in the game with the Suns. It is encouraging that they're getting this practice in, they're getting to play in these late game scenarios, like Devin Booker said, kind of being thrown into the fire in that way. Um, and, you know, Chris Paul is right. He, he said, after both the Hawks game and the Bulls game that their execution needs to be better, that, you know, he's happy with the way they're executing late in games and doing enough to win, but they shouldn't even be in that position. He's absolutely right. But, you know, if we're looking for a silver lining in the sun's letting all these teams back into the games and basically playing the same game over and over on repeat, it is that they're getting this practice that they are doing enough to continue winning and that this could come in handy when they find themselves in a similar scenario against better teams in the regular season or in the playoffs. So um, looking for that silver lining, there it is. But uh, we should also talk about Mark Gasol, who is kind of in an interesting place with the Los Angeles Lakers right now. So Gasol hasn't spoken to the media three straight times since the Andre Drummond signing was announced. And in Drummond's first game on Wednesday night, he only played six minutes and they were all, you know, fourth quarter garbage time minutes, basically. So Drummond hurt his toe in that game. I think his entire toenail came off, which is gross, but like, we don't know how severe that toe injury is, how long it's going to keep him out. I feel like that's a major discomfort thing, but not necessarily something that he won't be able to return soon or, or play through. Um, but it really does feel like even with Drummond's toe injury that we're heading towards a buyout, even with the toe injury, even with Anthony Davis currently still sidelined and the Lakers in need of any help they can get. Um, guys don't avoid talking to the media unless something is bothering them. And I don't think it's because it's one of those Kyrie Irving situations where he feels uh, stunted by the media or whatever it might be. So uh, this is a guy that the Suns should definitely keep an eye on. And he hasn't been great this season. The Lakers, there's been reports that the Lakers are not happy with the Marcus All experience thus far. And it, and it would make sense because he's only averaging like 4.8 points per game, 3.9 rebounds, uh, under two assists a game, 1.2 blocks. He's only shooting like 40% from the field and just under 35% from three, which is okay for a big man. Like that's not terrible, but he really has not been great for the Lakers and it's becoming more obvious with LeBron James and with Anthony Davis out that, you know, he might not be fit for an NBA finals run in that kind of prominent role. Like he start until they got Drummond, he started all 38 of his games for the Lakers and, you know, on another team, that's not what he would be doing on another contender. He wouldn't be starting. And I don't know if that's something that could hinder a signing there, because if he were to join the Suns, 
I don't know if you would want him in the backup role even over Dario Saric. And, and people keep saying like, we need a backup five. We need a backup five. No, we don't. Like Dario Saric is phenomenal in that role. You need like a third string big so that if there are matchups where he's getting killed on the glass or he's just outsized and he's having a bad game and, and what he brings on the other end isn't making up for it, then yes, you could use some length. You could use some size on the interior. But the Suns don't need a backup big. They need a third string big as insurance in case Dario Saric gets injured or on a night when DeAndre Ayton is in foul trouble, especially, and they're really lacking size. They need a third string big who can come in and play with that second unit. Marcus All would be really good in that role. I don't know if that's a role he would be willing to embrace because, you know, if he's unhappy with his role on the Lakers now that he's kind of being passed by Drummond and Montrez Harrell in in that lineup and at the five spot I don't know if he'd be happy you know playing that kind of same third string role in Phoenix which is a team that you know they might be higher in the standings than the Lakers but I think we can all agree that with a healthy LeBron James and Anthony Davis most people are going to pick the Lakers over the Suns in a seven game series they just are Um, especially because the Suns have so many unproven playoff players at this point, guys who haven't even been to the postseason yet. But if he would be willing to take on that role, if he does see the Suns as sort of an upgrade from his current situation, if he's just unhappy in LA, um, unhappy with their experience, because right now they have lost um, quite a bit of games. I think they're one in five in their last six games or so without LeBron and Um, they're like nine and 12 since Anthony Davis went down in February. So they haven't been doing a lot of winning lately. So maybe the losing is kind of compounding a bad situation, but it is something to keep an eye on because if it does progress to the point where the Lakers buy him out, the Suns would really have to think hard about cutting someone and making room for Mark Gasol. Um, you're probably looking at Etwan Moore or Frank Kaminsky, um, getting cut in that scenario, but And you don't want to disrupt a good thing because the Suns have great chemistry, but if it's like an end of the rotation kind of guy and you can get a proven playoff competitor, a guy who has experience, who can pass, who can spread the floor, who can sort of defend, he's a foot, he's a, you know, he's a step slow now, but um, you know, just in terms of the experience, the sheer mass that he would bring on the interior, like it's something that the Suns should at least consider if he gets bought out. Um, And again, the biggest caveat there is maybe he doesn't want the same third string role on a team like the Suns. Maybe he'd rather just stick with the Lakers and try and just coast his way to another championship there. But if he gets bought out, Suns should definitely have him on their radar and at least look into what a union there might look like because Gasol is a very smart player. He's an experienced player, Um, you know, until this kind of recent, um, you know, streak of, of being upset over the Drummond thing. He's been known as a very good veteran for young guys in this league. So he would definitely have something to add to this team, even if it's only in a third string role, but that's going to do it for Suns talk today. We're going to take a quick break and be right back after this. All right. So for today's G rated segment, we are going to be talking about Godzilla versus Kong, which is the new movie that just hit HBO max. It's in theaters as well. Um, I watched it on HBO max and I'm kind of jealous that I didn't get to go see it in theaters. I'm still a little wary about being in any public settings with the virus going on until I get the second dose of this vaccine. But um, I really actually kind of enjoyed it. And I feel like this movie is exactly what you would expect 
from this type of movie. Um, it's a giant pissed off monkey against a giant thick boy lizard. And it's really kind of fun to watch. Like the fight scenes were as epic as you would hope for. Um, again, that's an area where I wish I could have seen it in theaters because with the sound bumping and, you know, seeing it in theaters or seeing it in IMAX, like, holy shit, that would have been mind blowing. Um, but the CGI was pretty solid. I felt like the fight scenes were entertaining. Um, and best of all, they kind of gave both legends their chance to shine. Like, I feel like both fan bases are going to walk away from this movie thinking that their guy won, um, even though Godzilla totally won. <laughs> but uh, no spoilers either. I'm, I'm just joking around. But um, I, I feel like it was a very fitting tribute to both Godzilla and King Kong in letting their, them have their, their moments of glory. Um, and, you know, kind of predictably, all of the scenes involving humans were just kind of bad. Like you could see that coming just from the trailer. And that's kind of been the case for most of the, the movies leading up to this, you know, like Kong Skull Island and Godzilla King of Monsters and just Godzilla in general. Like they, they, the stuff with the humans wasn't very good. And in here, especially, it's not good. Like <laughs> most of the human subplots are just very boring or straightforward or just dry. Like a lot of the dialogue is, is pretty bad, but you know, it's, it is what it is. Like there's zero character development for one thing. Like um, Alexander Skarsgård's character, he's a scientist, has like zero backstory whatsoever. So there's like no stakes for anything that he's doing. Um, and it's cool that they have the continuity from like some of the other characters showing up from these past few movies to kind of establish this universe, I guess. Um, like, you know, it had uh, Millie Bobby Brown who plays, uh, you might know her as Eleven from Stranger Things. Like she was in the first two Godzilla movies. So she's, she returns here, um, but they just don't give these characters much to do really, which is fine because like I said, the whole focus is <laughs> big pissed off monkey versus big pissed off lizard. And that's all we're really here to see anyway. But like those scenes are kind of painful. Like the comedic relief attempts are bad. Like I love Brian Tyree Henry and uh, Julian Dennison, who you might remember as Fire Fist, the kind of kid sidekick from Deadpool 2. Um, both of them are great, but their, their dialogue doesn't give them shit to work with here. Like their attempts at comedic relief are just really bad. Um, but let's be honest, that's not what you're here for. You're not here for poignant dialogue. You're not here for exposition on the human condition. You're not here for even a coherent plot, really. <laughs> like you're here to watch big ass monsters duke it out. And there is plenty of that. Um, the movie kind of, I, I feel like this is a strength, but the movie knows what it is. It doesn't try to be more than that. And it fully leans into kind of just the ridiculousness of it all and just giving the people what they want. And that's, that's all we're here for. Um, so it's, it's better for it in that way. Um, to be honest, one of my biggest criticisms of the film is not like the character development stuff or the stuff with the actual human actors. It's, there could have been more fighting. Like there's the showdown kind of, early on in, in the movie um, where they're taking Kong by the boat to try to get him to this hollow, was it called hollow space or hollow energy? I don't remember, but it's, again, the plot is not great, <laughs> but um, they're trying to get him to this energy source to direct them to this energy source, basically that they can use to fight Godzilla, uh, rein him in or whatever. Um, but really the bad guys who are, working for apex technology 
um, you know, spoiler alert, the guys named Apex are trying to one up Mother Nature, but they're trying to find this energy source to power up their own uh, Mecha Godzilla suit, basically, that they harness the power of, I forget what the monster's name from the last one, but the one with the three heads um, that has like a telepathic connection between the heads. They basically establish a connection between that head and the head of this robot that they're building. And so they're trying to get this energy source from basically the Earth's core where King Kong's home used to be to power up this suit so that they can fight Godzilla and basically be the apex species again. So um, so they're taking Kong on this boat to get him there. And wouldn't you know it, Godzilla shows up because they have this you know, lifelong feud or whatever between giant monkeys and giant lizards. And that fight seems pretty cool. And then obviously the end is very cool with their final show down in Hong Kong. Um, so it, it's like those sequences are really well done. I honestly felt like we could have done with more fight scenes between Kong and Godzilla. I, maybe it would have been a little overbearing if they had another one. Um, maybe it would have lessened the impact of when they actually do duke it out. But um, yeah, I really do feel like there could have been more action, more fighting in this movie. And that might be my biggest complaint against it, honestly, because the action and fighting sequences that were involved were actually really cool and really well done. Um, there is, I will say this for the movie, as far as having a little bit more depth than I was expecting, there is kind of a clever little bit of symbolism about man's machinations versus forces of nature. So the original Godzilla movie, when it came out in 1954, was meant to be a way for Japan dealing with trauma, basically, because this was coming in the wake of the bombings, the nuclear bombings of Nagasaki and Hiroshima. And the message was basically that, you know, this force of nature is punishing mankind for nuclear warfare, basically. Um, and in this movie, the message is a little bit different. It's evolved since then, obviously. Um, but, you know, Godzilla and King Kong are these massive forces of nature, and they're on this collision course, and then they kind of change gears and switch it up to take down this giant Mecha Godzilla robot. And it's, it's kind of on the nose. It, it might be a little obvious. I don't know if anyone who watched the movie even picked up on this, but it's, you know, the blatant message there is forces of nature will always overcome mankind's machinations and our desire to be dominant. And basically, you know, I don't want to say it's all about like climate change or pin it on one specific issue, but it does kind of feel like this message is, hey, maybe we should stop fucking up the earth and let forces of nature prevail here and stop ruining the earth basically. Um, so again, it, it, maybe it was on the nose. It felt a little on the nose for me. Maybe it didn't even stand out to you because like I said, this is just a movie about a giant monkey fighting a giant lizard. And it's really entertaining at just that. But uh, that was kind of something that stood out to me that I thought was kind of clever and, and, dates back to the originals kind of satirical commentary because obviously that movie was just about a giant lizard destroying everything but like it also was very dark and very poignant in how in in conveying that message as far as like 
like mankind is being punished for doing these evil things for this nuclear warfare for disrupting mother earth basically and that message kind of came back in a different way in this one so i thought that was kind of interesting and a nice tribute to the original way back in the day but uh for my g rating for this movie i'm gonna give it a seven out of ten again it's not breaking the wheel it's not some fantastic piece of cinema that you need to see but if you're looking to be entertained for two hours and watch giant cgi monsters fight each other it's pretty damn entertaining and it's good for what it is so um, I would recommend it. It's, it's like I said, it's just pure entertainment. Not a lot of thought goes into it and that's totally okay. Um, you wouldn't be blamed if you're looking at your phone during some of the human dominant scenes. Um, but like I said, it's entertaining. It's a good two hours. It's worth watching. So seven out of 10 feels right here, but that's probably going to do it for this episode of the Valley of the Suns podcast. Thank you everyone for listening. Please make sure to subscribe and write me a five-star review if you have not already. But uh, until next time, this is Gerald Borgay signing off.